Take your Bibles once again and turn with me to Luke chapter 8. We continue our study in the Gospel of Luke. And while you're turning there, I will ask the Lord to bless our time in his word this morning. Father, you are so good to us. And one of the ways which is so evident uh, to us of your goodness, one of the ways that you have demonstrated this to us is in giving us your word. You have revealed yourself to us. You have not left us to guess at who you are or what you require, what you have done. You have given us your word, Father, and you speak to us in your word. And we pray, Father, that by your spirit you would make your truth known to us today. Father, it is our prayer that the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be honoring to you. Be true, Father, and reflect the revelation which you have given to us. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Luke chapter 8, we'll be looking at verses 22 through 25 this morning. Now, on one of those days, Jesus and his disciples got into a boat. And he said to them, let us go over to the other side of the lake. So they launched out. But as they were sailing along, he fell asleep, and a fierce gale of wind descended on the lake, and they began to be swamped and to be in danger. They came to Jesus and woke him up, saying, Master, Master, we are perishing. And he got up and rebuked the wind and the surging waves, and they stopped, and it became calm. And he said to them, Where is your faith? They were fearful and amazed, saying to one another, Who then is this that he commands even the winds and the water? And they obey him. I don't know whether you know it or not, but we are a faddish people. We're always looking for the next thing to come along and carry the masses along with it. Sometimes these things are just silly. The way we dress, the way we style our hair, the entertainment that we enjoy, it's trivial. And though we'd like to think the church is immune from such things, a moment of reflection demonstrates that that's not the case. The church is as faddish as anyone else. It seems much of the church is always seeking after the newest trend. That's what left behind was, if you remember that. The prayer of Jabez, going back a little bit further. Forty days of just about everything. I actually googled the phrase books, 40 days of. Here's some of the results. 40 days of prayer, 40 days of dating, 40 days of power, of course, 40 days of purpose. Here's a good one. 40 days of being a four. You know what that refers to, don't you? 
It's referring to yet another fad that the church has recently gotten all excited about, called the Enneagram. If you're not familiar with that, then good for you. If you are, I'm sorry. The Enneagram is described by its proponents as simply another way of categorizing personalities, much like the Myers-Briggs personality test, if you remember those. But that's not all it is. It is actually first mentioned by occultists in the early 1900s and then made its way into the Catholic Church in the 70s and for some unfathomable reason became hugely popular among evangelicals in the last five years or so. So this book, 40 Days of Being a Four, it's actually a fad within a fad. <laughs> evangelicals love fads. Here's another, we've all seen them. They're the t-shirts that say, keep calm and, right? it's followed by all kinds of other phrases, keep calm and carry on, keep calm and eat chocolate, I like that one. Keep calm and eat sushi, not so much for me. Of course, if you're going to follow the fad and get a Keep Calm t-shirt, it should be one which says, Keep Calm and Trust Jesus. That would be good. You can get them, by the way. And what we have in our passage this morning is one situation in which a fad may have been helpful to the disciples. Can you imagine they're all sitting there in the boat and the storm comes up? And the wind begins to blow, and they all get very concerned, but then they look around and they're all wearing the same t-shirt. Keep calm and trust Jesus. Maybe they would have had a different reaction. Just saying. I want to show you this morning why you can and should keep calm and trust Jesus. What our passage this morning shows is where Jesus was and will be, no matter how bad the storms that come into our lives. This passage answers the question, where is Jesus when we need him the most? And there are two answers to that. The first is this, he is with us in the midst of the storm. You see that in verses 22 through the first part of 24. On one of those days, Jesus and his disciples got into a boat, and he said to them, Let us go over to the other side of the lake. So they launched out. But as they were sailing along, he fell asleep, and a fierce gale of wind descended on the lake, and they began to be swamped and to be in danger. Then they came to Jesus and woke him up. You'll remember, I hope, if you've been with us, that our Lord had just finished teaching the parable of the sower to the multitude sitting by the shore of the lake. Privately, he explained that parable to his disciples because they had asked him to do so. And he gave the disciples insight into the meaning of that parable, which was not given to the crowd. In fact, because Jesus spoke in parable, he explained, the crowd is not able to understand what he was saying, and that was his purpose. He wanted the disciples, though, to have a clearer understanding, he says, of the mystery of the kingdom. 
And then he went on to tell another parable, this one about a lamp and the importance of listening well to the word of God and then obeying what we hear. Now, according to the other Gospels, on this same occasion, Jesus taught a number of other parables that Luke does not include. We've spoken about this before. If every Gospel was going to be exactly the same, there would be no need for four of them. And so... Some of the gospel writers include things that others do not. Some leave out some things that the others include. Because each writer has his own purpose in how he's structuring his gospel. And that's what we're seeing here. Jesus taught a number of other parables, and when he was through teaching, he departed from that place. Mark says that Jesus told his disciples, let us go over to the other side. So that evening, our Lord got into a boat and began the journey across the sea. Now, apparently, Jesus had no need of Dramamine. He has no problems with seasickness because he just lays himself down in the bottom of the ship and before long, he fell asleep. Now, when one puts together all of, the, all of the gospel accounts, it becomes pretty clear that he had perhaps spent a number of days teaching the crowds. And so he naturally would have been physically drained, and it wasn't long before he falls off to sleep, not out of the boat. Some of my fondest childhood memories are sleeping in the back seat of my father's car. I still remember the chill in the air, and the rhythm of the road underneath the car, and falling off to sleep, hoping that we wouldn't get home too quickly. Do you remember that? You have to be of a certain age, right? Because when I was a kid, seatbelts weren't really a thing yet. And we could just lay down on the back seat, or in our case, my brother on the back seat and me on the floor. I imagine that's what it was like on the boat. A gentle rocking, the sound of water rhythmically splashing against the wooden hull, and there is Jesus, perhaps using a folded-up sail as a pillow, and he's drifting off for a refreshing nap. Well, that's how things began, at least. It's not how they ended up. That peaceful, nautical scene would not last. After he had fallen asleep... Luke says that a fierce gale of wind descended on the lake and they began to be swamped and to be in danger. Now what we need to understand is that the Sea of Galilee is not really a sea, but as Luke says, a large lake. It has a surface area of about 65 square miles and it's about 700 feet below sea level and it's surrounded by mountains of various heights. Because of those geographical characteristics, at certain times of the year, the eastern winds would cause storm clouds to gather very quickly without much notice at all. And with very little warning, these uh, storm clouds would cause gale force winds to whip up, sometimes as strong as 60 miles an hour. 
That's what Luke is describing for us. Verse 23 says that they began to be swamped and to be in danger. In Mark's account, he says that the waves were breaking over the boat so much that the boat was already filling up with water. Of course, they have no radio with which to issue a mayday call. There's no Roman coast guard that's going to be coming along to rescue them. They were in a gale in a small 18-foot open boat, and they were on their own, and things were not looking good. So what do they do? Well, neither Luke nor Matthew nor Mark tell us this, but we have to assume that the first thing they did was to start bailing. I mean, things like this don't happen all at once. Even if the storm comes up upon you suddenly, the boat doesn't immediately fill up with water. Some of these disciples were fishermen, remember. They had been through similar situations, though perhaps not this severe At first, they might not have been terribly concerned. They would have known what to do. You start to see water accumulating in the bottom of the boat. doesn't take a rocket scientist to figure out maybe we should start bailing. But eventually, the amount of water that they were bailing couldn't keep up with the amount of water that was coming in. That's a problem. At that point, you wake up Jesus. And that's what they did. In the midst of this terrible storm, with gale force winds, rain beating down upon them, waves coming in over the sides of the boat, the, the, the disciples frantically bailing, and we have to imagine shouting at one another so that they could be heard above the storm, Jesus is still sleeping. And so, verse 24, they came to Jesus and woke him saying, Master, Master, we are perishing. Matthew says, They came to him and woke him up, saying, Master, Master, we are perishing. Save us, Lord, we are perishing. Mark says that it was put in the form of a question. Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? Now some might look at that, and see a contradiction. Look, they'll say. Matthew and Mark put uh, Matthew and Mark record the disciples saying different things, and that much is true. It's, there's not a huge difference, but there's a difference there. But let me ask you something. If you were there watching what was going on, what do you think you'd see? Do you think you'd see a group of calm and collected? Men, each one politely speaking in turn? Or do you think they might have been a little bit excited and talking over each other? Everyone saying pretty much the same thing, but in a slightly different way. There's John. Master, master, we are perishing. And there's Nathaniel. Save us, Lord, we're perishing. Maybe Judas cries out. Teacher, don't you care? Two things are going on at the same time here. First, the disciples are in a state of panic. And second, they begin to question whether or not Jesus really does love them. 
Is he really concerned about them? There seems to be this understanding that Jesus can save himself, but a question as to whether he'll save anybody else. But they knew Jesus was their only chance. And it seemed to them in the moment like he was more concerned with catching up on his sleep than he was with their safety. Now, before you start to criticize the disciples for their lack of faith, stop a moment and consider just how typical their response is. Typical of us, I mean. How often do we find ourselves having used all of our physical, mental, and emotional resources and finding our hearts still swamped with fear and still sinking and only then turning to the sleeping figure in the back of the boat? Okay, Jesus, I, 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 I've done everything I can. I guess I'll ask you to help now. Where is Jesus when we need him most? He is with us. He is with us in the midst of the storm, and, as we're going to see, he is with us in the midst of the calm as well. The end of verse 24, we read that Jesus got up and rebuked the wind and the surging waves, and they stopped, and it became calm. And then he said to them, Where's your faith? So our Lord has two responses. Mark tells us that he rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Hush, be still. The Lord God is the author of the wind, and he's able to do as he pleases in regard to the wind, all to his glory. The Lord God, by his word, creates the universe and all that is in it. There is no force in heaven or on earth that can stop the word of God or the will of God. So by a word, the Lord Jesus calms the storm. And having calmed the storm, he then turns his attention to the disciples. Where is your faith? Matthew says that Jesus went on to ask, Why are you afraid, you men of little faith? And I want to ask, why the rebuke? After all, I'm kind of sympathetic to these guys. Because I know that I would have responded in the same way. And yet, I also know that everything Jesus does, everything he says, is right. And I have to somehow deal with that conflict. I want to be sympathetic to the disciples, but then I see what Jesus says. doesn't seem to be a lot of sympathy there for their faithlessness. We have a tendency, don't we, to excuse things. Whether it be sin or, in this case, a lack of faith, which is also sin, by the way, whether it be anything that comes out of an unpleasant experience, we think we're being sympathetic and compassionate when we pass over these things in others and in ourselves. 
We want to say, well, you know, you've, you've got to understand, she's been through so much. And we want to say, you know, you've really got to put yourself in his shoes. He's had a really hard time. It's, it's quite understandable, you know. And I want to do that in regard to the disciples. I get that. I understand that. I know what it is to be afraid. But then Jesus speaks and says, where is your faith? And he's not entertaining excuses. He doesn't say, guys, I get it. I understand. Jesus will not allow our circumstances and our hardships and our fear to be excuses for sin and faithlessness. You hear what he's saying? If you are mine, then there is never a reason for you not to trust me. This is far more about Jesus than it is about the disciples. There is never a rationale for unbelief. There is never an excuse for disobedience. Jesus doesn't go around the boat hugging each of the disciples and softly saying, There, there, it's all right. Everything will be okay. He does something which in our day, many people are afraid to do. He speaks directly, and he speaks plainly, and he rebukes them for their faithlessness. And can I remind you, when he does this, their hearts are still beating out of their chests. Because just a moment ago, they thought they were all going to die. And Jesus doesn't even give them a moment to recover before he deals with them concerning their unbelief. Why? Because by then they should have known better. Jesus appeared on the stage of history and was declared by his cousin John the Baptist in the hearing of some of those men to be the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Then our Lord chose these disciples in order to prepare them to carry the gospel of redemption to the next generation after he was crucified for the sins of mankind and buried and raised again from the dead by his father. For two years, Jesus has been demonstrating his claim to be the long-awaited Messiah by healing the sick and casting out demons and raising the dead. That's why after overcoming the deadly power of nature, he asks them, so where's your faith? You should know better by now. All this time, have you learned nothing of who I am? And verse 25 gives us the response of the disciples They were fearful and amazed. At first they were filled with fear of the storm, and now they were filled with fear of the power of the living Lord. Psalm 89, verses 8 and 9, says this, Lord God of armies, Who is like you, mighty Lord? Your faithfulness also surrounds you. You rule the surging of the sea. When its waves rise, you calm them. These were Old Testament men 
They knew that. And so the frightened disciples are saying to one another, Who then is this? That he commands even the winds and the water, and they obey him. In Psalm, uh, Proverbs rather, chapter 30 and verse 4, Agur writes this, Who has ascended into heaven and descended? Who has gathered the wind in his fists? Who has wrapped the waters in his garment? Who has established all the ends of the earth? What is his name or his son's name? Surely you know. We know, don't we? We know his name. His name is Yahweh, God Almighty. We know the name of the Son. It is Jesus, because he will save his people from their sin. Psalm 107 is a song of deliverance for those in times of trouble. And we find that this kind of incident here on the Sea of Galilee had been experienced by sailors for at least a thousand years prior to Jesus. And you would think that at least the fishermen among the disciples would have hidden this particular psalm in their hearts for occasions just like this. The psalm begins by saying, Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. His mercy is everlasting. And then later on in the psalm, in verses 23 through 29, we read this. Those who go down in the sea, to the sea in ships who do business on great waters. They have seen the works of the Lord and his wonders in the deep, for he spoke and raised a stormy wind which lifted the waves of the sea. They rose up to the heavens. They went down to the depths. Their soul melted away in their misery. They reeled and staggered like a drunken person and were at their wit's end. Then they cried out to the Lord in their trouble, and he brought them out of their distresses. He caused the storm to be still so that the waves of the sea were hushed. It sounds to me, like on this occasion, Luke is relating to us. Jesus was taking that psalm and bringing it to life. Mark records that Jesus used some of those very words from that psalm when he calmed the storm. Mark says that he rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Hush, be still. And the wind died down, and it became perfectly calm. The psalm continues in verse 30, saying, Then they were glad because they were quiet, so he guided them to their desired harbor. They shall give thanks to the Lord for his mercy and for his wonders to the sons of mankind. Where is Jesus when you need him most? He is with you in the midst of the storm, and he is with you in the midst of the calm. The story of the stilling of the storm is not, of course, meant to tell us that Jesus is never going to allow any believer to perish by drowning or any other natural disaster. 
Many believers have perished in all kinds of different ways. It does tell us something else, however. It does tell us that he is Lord of the physical forces of the universe. It does tell us that for him, nothing happens by accident. It does tell us that no force in all creation can destroy his plan for our eternal salvation or separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. And there is something else it tells us. It tells us that Jesus is such a good, powerful, and gracious Lord that there is never a reason not to trust him. Never. There is never an excuse for faithlessness. That is what his disciples had to learn. We must learn how to walk by a faith that is based on the word of God, and we must learn to trust in that which we cannot see. That is, those unseen spiritual realities. The reality that our wonderful Lord Jesus came into this world willing to die on the cross for our sin, that he was buried, that he was raised by his Father, that he was declared Lord of Lords and King of Kings, and that he is now alive, present, and fully aware of the various storms that come into our lives, the storms we are dealing with now and the storms that have yet to come. All the storms are in God's control and are designed to teach us to call upon him in faith before the storm clouds hit, within the storm itself, and after the storm has passed. And after we've been through a few of these storms, we should be able to come to him in the midst of the next one, not like the disciples who panicked and said, Lord, don't you care? but rather saying, Lord, by faith and by past experience, I believe that only you can calm the storm and the wind and the seas, and I trust you to do it if that be your will. You have promised me that you will do good. I may perish physically, but I will never perish spiritually. Therefore, Lord, your will be done. Where is Jesus when you need him most? He is with you in the midst of the storm. And he is with you in the midst of the calm. And he can be trusted. He can be trusted. Look unto him before the storm and in the midst of the storm. And after the storm is passed, because God determines when each of those seasons comes to you. And God determines what good he will accomplish through each of those seasons. Father, thank you. Your sovereignty is such a blessing, Father, and a comfort to us. There is no storm that comes into our lives that is outside of your control. 
There is no raging wind that is random and purposeless. Rather, Father, everything that you bring to us is meaningful, intended to accomplish your good purposes in our lives. And therefore, even when we don't know what those purposes are, we can and ought to trust you. Because you are worthy of our trust. We can maintain our faith in you because you are faithful in all that you do and all that you have said. Father, we thank you for all of this today. In the name of Jesus, our Savior, amen.